Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I'm the Associate Editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, we're in February already. We're we're a twelfth of the way done with 2023. How you doing? It's weird. We just had a brutal cold spell in New Jersey, but it's gone now, and... My 12-year-old son's out playing wiffle ball in the park today, so it's like it's all, it's all, not quite spring yet, but it's starting to feel like it. Yeah, it got it got chilly here. We uh we started seeing some temperatures that began with a three. It's 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 concerning here in Arizona. <laughs> we, we saw Yikes. it was uh I think it was like 10 degrees lower than the national average, or not the national average, the, the the typical average for this time of year. Um, a couple days there, so chilly here as well. Different kind of chilly. It's still sunny and bright and you can still go outside but yeah but yeah i mean you know trucks are departing for spring training locations with equipment and and uh we're only what two weeks ish away from pitchers and catchers reporting i think so you know you can start to feel a buzz but with that it feels like um things have been winding down a little bit in the hot stove area um i I think we're going to see a couple of couple of things still happening but it's been a little quiet lately yeah, you look around the league and there's not a whole lot left, it doesn't seem, that needs to be done. I mean, there's plenty of teams that are incomplete, but that seems partially by design and partially just, there's nothing left for them to do. You know, unless unless Brian Reynolds is moving in these next couple weeks, uh, I, I think we're going to see a bit more of, a, of what we've seen the last week or so, which is a handful of extensions, maybe some minor moves on the edges. Um, once we get into spring training teams will be able to add players to their 60-man injured lists. Mm -hmm. And so that will take them off 40-man and open up spots for either lower-tier free agents or just shuffling guys around, waiver claims, that kind of stuff. So maybe we'll see some more activity then, but I think you're right. we're, We're in a little bit of a quiet spell as we start to head towards spring training. Yeah, to that last point, I mean, there's still some decent relievers out there that haven't signed. Andrew Chafin's still out there, Michael Fulmer, Mike Moore had a good season and you know i was taking a we'll talk about the royals in a minute here as well but um uh, jj piccolo the gm of the royals said no we're not done yet we got a couple other moves kind of we think we might be doing and so it makes you wonder you know their closer scott barlow has some value um like they seem to be kind of clearing out veterans for for younger players and like the new and he's new there in Kansas City, and so well, he's he was the assistant for a while, but he's new in that particular chair, and so he seems to be very sort of like clear, clear sighted about okay, uh, we're not quite there yet, so I'm going to trade away veterans, and I've got a couple more. So you naturally think is Scott Barlow on the block, so I could see that happening along with some of those other free agent reliever signings. So there may be some movement in the in the reliever market, both in terms of trade and, and free agency coming. This is very funny. I think this is the second time on the podcast in the last like. 15-ish episodes that you've said Mike Moore instead of Matt Moore. Did I say Mike Moore? What the heck? Sorry about that. Matt Moore. <laughs> Just a funny one. For for I have no room to talk for all the names I've mispronounced and mixed up, but just a just a funny one. Okay, Dave. Well, uh, let's just jump into it. We have a few trades to talk about, a handful of extensions, as I mentioned, and a couple other topics here and there that'll uh, pop up from those, but... Let's start with probably the biggest trade of the last couple of weeks. Uh, the A's continuing their fire sale. They traded left-handed pitcher Cole Irvin to the Orioles. Um, they also sent right-handed pitching prospect Kyle Verbitsky 
and in return received Dar Darrell Her Hernaez infield prospect. See, I, I give you a hard time about a name, and then I immediately stumble in the first trade we're talking about. <laughs> um, so we had Irvin at $15 million in median trade value, Verbitsky at 1.2, so that's 16.2 total, headed to Baltimore, and Hernaez heading back to Oakland at 2.7. So a really big gap there. Um, and we're going to we're gonna get deep into why that is, how we got here. <laughs> but um, as far as the trade itself, the Orioles have had a very quiet offseason, especially for a team that like looks like it's in that take the next step stage. You know, they, they, they look like they're in that stage where they should be adding some significant free agents and the, the core is almost ready. Gunnar Henderson is Major League Baseball's top prospect and he's about to be i believe he debuted last season um but he's going to have his full shrift of it this year adley is established he's already a stud and there's plenty of other names up and down that system that are making their way to the big leagues um so it looked like the kind of spot in the competitive window where the orioles would start really bolstering their major league roster and they have not done that at all this offseason they added kyle gibson <laughs> so uh, irvin is at least a help there he's he's some nice back-end pitching depth um he, he's a solid four or five he's not gonna shoot up and be anything more most likely but he's at least some reliable innings in the back end to help out with the kids that they'll call up and, and use throughout the year the Grayson Rodriguez's and, and DL Hall if they get him into the rotation so it makes some sense for them from that standpoint and for the A's they had just a surplus of starting pitching um not necessarily reliable starting pitching but as a rebuilding team, they didn't really need a guy like Cole Irvin hanging around. They already kind of have one of him in Paul Blackburn and a younger one of him in J.P. Sears. So didn't need Irvin there as well. They brought in Shintaro Fujinami and Drew Rusinski from overseas, and they want to guarantee both of those guys rotation spots. They have a bunch of kids that they need to get some work in. Kyle Muller, uh, Ken Waldachuk, a handful of others. So no great spot for Irvin. And they had just before this deal signed Jesus Aguilar to a major league deal. And so they needed a, a spot on the 40 man for him. So that seems to have had some sort of an influence on this trade as well. Um, but yeah, so, so there's, that's the reasoning for the Irvin side of it. But where we get into the questions is how the values line up and with Hernia's not quite getting it done. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll, I'll let you take over from here. Okay, so let's just talk about Irvin's valuation for a second. Um, he has four years of control. He's not even in arbitration yet, and he's, a, like you said, a decent-ish back-end starter. Now, if you look at other comparable back-end starters uh, who have gotten paid in free agency, Jordan Lyles got a two-year, $17 million deal. So he's getting $8.5 million a year for being a back-end starter with numbers very similar to Irvin. Trevor Williams, another guy who's kind of bounced around a bit, got a two-year deal for $13 million. And so he's getting $6.5 million per year over the next two years committed to him. So he got $8.5 million, $6.5 million. So Irvin <clears throat> is right in there with, him, with those guys in terms of numbers. And he's making league minimum. So if you just sort of crunch the numbers, we had him at roughly $20 million for value for four years in field value. And he's going to make like four or five in salary. So there's your $15 million surplus. That's how we got that because he's actually probably potentially better than those two guys I just mentioned. 
and you don't have to you could you know you can non-tender him at any time so there's optionality there you don't have to commit the money to them to him and we still have him at like basically a five million dollar aav uh compared to those guys who are eating six and a half and eight and a half to me that seems entirely reasonable however i get that back-end starters can be viewed as kind of um a dime a dozen there's there's more oftentimes more demand sorry more supply than demand and so that could ten- that potentially could drive down the market value a little bit but it doesn't explain why people would fork teams would fork over the money for a jordan lyles or a trevor trevor williams when they could have just had traded for Irvin. so <clears throat> that's where that's where things get weird now you know contrarians can point out that Irvin's numbers on the road you know, were uglier than his numbers at home. So theoretically, he was benefiting from the Hoakland Coliseum. So if you take him out of the Coliseum, maybe he's not so good. Maybe he's not even a fit. Maybe. However, you know, uh, in the Orioles Park, they made some changes to the field. It's a lot deeper. It's a lot more pitcher-friendly. So you might think, okay, that's a wash. Um, so still, you know, maybe $15 million in surplus values. You know, maybe I could see a case for it being a little bit high, but not that high. And then they'd have to throw they have to throw in another prospect just to get the Orioles eighteenth ranked prospect, their fifth ranked shortstop, according to Baseball America. Um, who was rated a forty by Baseball America and a forty plus by Fangrass, which is why we get his low valuation number. So that's a big gap. Um, you know, we might get into the article I wrote about the A's and kind of what they're doing, which doesn't match our model and what most teams use so our model is basically saying here's what the consensus thinks the a's are like okay here's what we think and there's a gap there and that explains a lot of their moves and so um one other point i will make on hernias is sometimes we've heard um, teams who really like a prospect will pay a little bit more for them kind of jump in the gun thinking they will increase in value in the next year or so you know they have a little helium they may be undervalued right now so you could probably squint and say maybe Hernias could be a little higher, maybe Irvin could be a little lower, but there'd still be a gap, and that's largely attributable to the difference in the modeling that we do versus what the A's do. Yeah, to your point about the A's having to add a prospect in here, they've done that a couple times, and it's always kind of a head-scratcher. Mm-hmm. It's it's never anybody too huge, but I'm, I'm just looking through our, our logs here. They kind of did that with the Sean Murphy trade. They added Joel Piamps headed to the mm-hmm. Brewers. He, we had him in a zero and he was kind of just a roster filler type guy anyway. So that's not a not a huge deal on that one. Um in the Sean Manaya trade, they added somebody Holiday. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh some prospect, <laughs> last name Holiday, even though that one was kind of like this one. It was a it's actually a very comparable deal. Uh that deal was Manaya at fourteen point one and Holiday at point two in exchange for Yuri Biel Angeles at 2.4 and Adrian Martinez at 0.5. So this was a very similar deal where they kind of, obviously Manaya, a better pitcher than Irvin and only had one year of control remaining at the time. Um, but they shipped off a, a seemingly valuable starting pitcher in exchange for one prospect that they seemed to like more than anyone else. And particularly a guy who's more whose game is more oriented around speed and, and contact rather than where everybody is trending these days, which is with batted ball data and, and how hard can they hit the ball. The A's have very clearly gone against that 
in their last handful of deals. It seems like they, they kind of did the same thing with the Sean Murphy deal, t- targeting Asturi Ruiz in that deal instead of yeah. just hanging on to William Contreras. Um, but yeah, there's there's been a couple of these cases where the A's, they're already losing the trade, but then also <laughs> throw in a prospect just to, I guess, just to make a friend or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, that, um, that's inexplicable to me as well. I mean, but to your point about they're, they're targeting this particular type of kind of speedy contact hitter guy. Um, so far, that hasn't worked out well based on what they got in the Manaya deal. Angeles uh, was Rule 5 eligible. They did not protect him, and he was not selected. So his value has gone down since then. And seemingly the consensus says, no, nope, we don't think he's worth, worth anything. No team actually would take him for basically free. <laughs> so... <laughs> Go figure, um, you know. And you know, Mr. Ruiz is ranked eighth, was ranked eighth in the Brewers' farm, which is kind of a middling farm, you know. And this one, um, Hernandez was ranked 18th in the Orioles' farm, which is a stronger farm, but nonetheless, he's you know in that 40 area. So they're really kind of ignoring value and targeting the type of guy that, you know, for whatever reason they like. Um, and that's worth an, I, a whole. I wrote a whole article about the valuation uh, thing, how they're losing their value in each one of their trades. But there's also sort of a, a I think a, a topic to explore there: why they would would be so so committed to targeting this type of speedy contact hitter, um, because nobody else is. Like I'm thinking of Xavier Edwards, who bounced around from the Padres system to the Rays system. Now he's in the Marlins system. He's lost value in each time. Like, he can hit for average and speed, but that's about it. Like, why is no one else targeting him? Uh, so so they're clearly going against the grain. And maybe it has something to do with the, the upcoming shift rules changes. I don't know. We'll just have to see. Yeah, that's that seems to be the popular answer to it, is that it's about the shift rules. It's about the larger bases. It's about the pickoff rules as well. And so it, it's speed could come back a little bit this year. It might be easier to steal bases. It might be easier to run out a single, that kind of thing, an, an infield single. But it just seems like a weird spot to to focus so many high-value trades on. Like, I get it if, if you're picking up a couple of these guys as, like, the second or third piece because you go, oh, hey, they're, they're fast. That might be more useful now, and, and I think we're going to jump the gun on this, um, you know, market inefficiency type thing. Uh, but when they're the centerpiece of every deal and you're foregoing millions and millions tens of millions of dollars honestly between all these trades in value just to get the speedy guy because you think it's going to work out i there's something wrong there there's something missing there the... yeah and, and, and plus it's ignoring the market the market is basically saying we don't really care that much why do you guys care that much and so like they could have gotten more you know it doesn't make any rational sense to overpay for guys who are not all that in demand from the rest of the market you know, they should, to your point, that 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 could be a secondary piece, but not the primary piece. Right, right. It's weird. Um, the other thing that might be going on and, and it's kind of related is, like I said earlier, it's it's popular now to be targeting these guys with big batted ball data. Right. If we're getting much better data up and down the minors and even down into like college of just how hard you hit the ball and where you're hitting it and your angle. And what we're getting that data at all levels of baseball now and teams, the smart teams, especially are really targeting guys who show from an early age that, yeah, they hit the crap out of the ball and they hit it with a quality swing and in a quality way that's going to be conducive to primarily power hitting once they get to the big leagues. And once they fill out, 
Um, and so if everybody's targeting those guys, that makes them expensive, clearly. And so it could be that the A's are seeing that and they're zigging while everyone else zags. And mm-hmm. rather than paying the full market price for any of those type of guys, they're just saying, hey, we see some value in these guys instead. But that still doesn't explain, like you said, why they're just leaving so much on the table. Yeah. Okay. Well, if you like these contact guys, then, you know, there, there's probably another one in the Oriole system that's worth another four or five million that should have been tacked into this deal. And then maybe a more traditional guy or something or, or an arm or, yeah, it, it, there's still just too big of a gap here. And there wasn't, I don't think there was necessarily, there's maybe a little bit of urgency to move Irvin, given the roster crunch, given the full rotation. But, it's not like we're talking about the 27 Yankees here. This, <laughs> this, this, there's plenty of other roster fodder that could have been cut off the, the fringes here. And then they could have held Irvin into spring training and maybe made a deal with him uh, once some other contenders saw some injuries in the spring and, and had a rotation spot open up. Well, there you go. Here's a Cole Irvin for you. So yeah. it, it seems like they rushed into this deal. And it seems like they've done that a couple times yeah. A little bit last off season and, and we can kind of give them a bit of a pass for that. Um, just because of how weird it was with the lockout and they didn't make any trades before the lockout and then suddenly the floodgates open and they had a couple weeks to put together a team. And David Force has actually gone on the record and said that, yep, that that strongly impacted our plans. We didn't get to have the type of off season we normally do, and, and you kind of saw it. All they did other than trading guys away was they signed Jed Lowry and Steven Vogt. And they're a team that'll usually Get, get a little more interesting on the free agent market, even when they're rebuilding and, and sign some of these bounce back types that they can either flip at the deadline or or what have you. Uh, and they didn't do that at all last year because of the lockout. And they were pretty vocal about that. So, okay, I'll give them a pass for that one. But even this offseason, it seems like they've just rushed into a few deals and I yeah. don't get it. Yeah, no, I think it's mostly about targeting this type of player. So we'll see how that turns out. But, um, you know, <clears throat> the analysis that I did in the in the article I wrote last weekend um, shows that so far, you know, in all the trades they've made since they decided to do the big teardown, they're losing a lot of value in both in individually, like they've come out on the losing end of every single one of the trades that they've made based on our modeling. And so cumulatively, that has really added up to a net loss. Um, you know, <clears throat> since they began, they traded away uh, by my count, 190.4 million in surplus value, and only received 113. So they've lost 77 million on the trade by coming out of the short end, and that's a 46% hit. You don't do that if you're a rebuilding team. You just don't. You need to get the opposite. You need to at least get fair value back and not not lose them. But it seems to be getting worse. And and if that wasn't bad enough, the players they got last year in that slew of trades, you know, and after the lockout. Have also declined in value quite a bit of them um, as well. I mentioned Don Hulis, who was not uh, uh, protected in the Rule Five, but Christian Pache is now out of options and he still hasn't shown any ability to hit. So he's probably going to be a DFA at some point this season. Um, you know, struggled with pitchers. Some of the pitchers they got in the uh, Matt Olson trade, Ryan Cusick, Joey Estes have not performed well. Gunnar Hogland, who they got from the Blue Jays. Uh, re-injured himself seemingly and had to be his season was was cut short. Um, JT Ginn has not performed well. There's all sorts of names here in these prospects that have gone down in value. Their stock has dropped since they traded for them. So even if you argue that okay, well, you know maybe they had a plan and they didn't mind so much losing all that value from the veteran trades in the first place, 
you still can't ignore the fact that these guys that they traded for have also lost value, and so it's making things even worse. So it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel for this rebuild here for the A's. Yeah, and this is the A's we're talking about. You know, I, I think people put on their green and gold tinted glasses and say that, oh, they're just they just don't go by the books and and remember 2012 and and they surprise you and and all that and yeah sure they they they've had their moments as as an organization and and there are certainly some smart people with the team but this isn't the rays we're talking about this isn't this isn't a team that's kind of earned that reputation where we look at a trade that looks a little off and we're thinking oh they're doing it again. They must know something we don't. That That's not kind of the reputation the A's have earned to this point. It, it seems instead like they're making a bunch of weird and, and possibly very ill-advised <laughs> decisions in a row. Yeah. Um, in your article here, you have uh, you, you include that Baseball America rates the A's farm 27th out of 30. In our model, it's at 22. And I believe the Athletic just came out with their rankings recently, and they were at like 23. Yeah. That's rough for a team that's been rebuilding this heavily, yep. has traded this much talent, and usually when something like that happens, you go, oh, they must have graduated some guys. It's really just Langoliers. It's it's Langoliers and Nick Allen are, are the, the graduates from the minor mm. league system that are really of, of note what's at all, and those aren't guys that would... I mean, Langoliers was a top 100 prospect, so maybe that pushes their system to... Know, the, the low Not 20s the, the high yeah. teens they're still a bottom half farm system despite trading like you said 190 million dollars in surplus value in yeah. a year and a half they that's that's not going to cut it and for for a team like this they really need to win their trades right they're they're not going to be able to go out and sign a carlos correa or anything along those lines in the free agent market they need to be doing well on these trades and i mean there's enough volume here that all it takes is a couple of these guys just clicking, turning it around. You know, a Cusick, he has a strong year, and JT Ginn gets healthy, and, and Waldachuk pitches well in the big leagues, and, and maybe the, maybe Cooper Bowman, who is that uh, throw-in piece of the Frankie Montas trade, maybe he turns out to be something. And then suddenly you're looking at this all a little different, but that's a lot of ifs. And exactly. instead of having all these ifs, we could be looking at, you know, nearly a hundred million more in surplus, or yeah, nearly a hundred million more in surplus sitting in the A's system right now is what we could be looking at if they had capitalized on the value in all of these trades, but they just didn't. No, and so one other sort of factor here is, you know, it's they've been kind of churning for a while. If you look at the knock on Billy Bean, is you know, yes, he can put together teams that make the playoffs, but he can never actually win the big one. And they haven't been in the World Series since 1990. <laughs> Am I right? Yeah, 1990. Um, they haven't won a World Series in 1989. So, you know, they can put together teams of good players. And even if you look at this most recent team, there was no superstar. Like, you know, there. if you look at World Series champions, they've got superstars at the top. You know, Verlander, you know, as an ace, you know, or a great closer or a great outfielder or whatever. They, like in that elite tier, there's usually two or three. Even if you go back to the early 70s days, they had Richie Jackson, Catfish Hunter, Vita Blue, Raleigh Fingers, like four Hall of Famers, right? The eight, late 80s teams, they had Ricky Henderson and, and Dennis Eckersley. And, you know, they, they had a few guys who were really stars. And then they had some good players under that. 
So the most recent AIDS teams, though, have lacked those stars at the top. They've had the good ones, but not the great ones. And so one could argue they know that, and they're sort of reaching, thinking maybe this guy Hernandez could be a star. Maybe Asturi Ruiz can be a star. Maybe if we sign Robert Poisson, and he'll be a star. And they've all, you know, it's not working. Maybe we reach for Austin Beck, and he can be a star, and it didn't work. So they keep striking out, trying to land a star somehow, either in the draft or in the international market or in trades, and it's not working um, because these are very high-risk picks, and the risk has come back to bite them. And, and then they flip that, though, and they draft Daniel Susak with their first pick, even though they already have 100 catchers in the organization. It's <laughs> It's a deeply weird system and a deeply weird team the last couple years. And I don't see a clear path for them. I think 2023 is very make or break for the organization as a whole, both on and off the field. There's all the stadium stuff that we don't need to get into because it just makes me sad. Um, yeah. But very make or break. You know, you mentioned Pache, who is out of options, and, and it pretty, pretty literally is make or break for him. If he has a bad April, May, he's gone. Yeah. Um, but but a lot of these guys could really see their value swing pretty heavily in either direction this season, and that's going to kind of dictate: Are we looking at the A's maybe starting to creep into it in 2024 and being an actual contender again 2025, or are we looking at another four or five years before we really start talking about them uh, making yeah, the based playoffs on, again? Based on what I'm seeing, I'm sure it's the latter. Um, yeah. Well, pretty pretty exactly. pretty clear that there's not a lot. They're just not getting a lot of talent back. Um, so. So, sorry, I didn't mean to derail the whole thing on the A's, but it seemed like since we were talking about that last trade, that was the opportunity to do so. That's the A's. I'll go ahead and link that article in the show notes. Uh, but let's move on to the rest of the trades and transactions. Uh, the Twins, they acquired Michael A. Taylor from the Royals. Uh, we had Taylor at, if I can find this, where did Michael Taylor go? They had Taylor at $2.8 million in median trade value. Um, he heads from the Royals to the Twins. In exchange, the Royals receive two pitchers, uh, minor league relievers Evan Sisk and Steven Cruz. Cruz at 0.4, Sisk at 0.1. So that's 0.5 total. Bit of a gap there. Um, comes out to, a, I believe, a minor overpay by the Royals, but still accepted by the model. Um, it's kind of interesting that original reports, when, when it came out that the Twins were interested in Taylor, the name that the Royals were asking for was Josh Winder. And we had him at like eight or nine million in median trade value. So that would have been a clear overpay. But the, the twins were saying no to that. And they eventually worked out a deal here with Siskin Cruz. Um, Taylor is really perfect Byron Buxton protection. Because we know <laughs> Buxton's, he's going to max out at like 120 games in a season. That That's the most you can project him for. He might surprise and get you to 140, 150. But the most you can reasonably project him for is 120. And of those 120, maybe only 80 of them will actually be in the outfield. He DH'd a lot mm-hmm. last year to keep himself healthy. And and that didn't fully work, but keep himself healthier, I guess. Um, and, and when he's out there, he's a superb defensive center fielder, one of the best in the game. Um, and, and then once you pull him and, and stick him at DH, you have a bit of a drop-off there. They were playing uh, Nick Gordon out there sometimes, and Max Kepler sliding over, and now they have Joey Gallo, but you probably don't want him playing a lot of center field either. Uh, their next option would have been like Gilberto Celestino, and that's not ideal. But Taylor is a fantastic backup. Uh, this is this is the role he was he was built for, <laughs> is being available for those other 80-ish, 80-ish games that 
Buxton isn't going to be in center field. Now they get to still have a superb glove out there. And, you know, he's not the worst hitter in the world. He actually had a decent offensive season last year. I think he was about a league average bat. He can um, hit. He can hit uh, opposite side pitching, and he's a righty. Mm-hmm. I think. He, I think he can hit lefties, so you can use him as a short side platoon guy. Right, right. So it's really a great fit, and it costs the Twins basically nothing. Adds to their depth. Um, on the Royals' end of it, they had some prospects. They want to get some looks. They want to see what they have with Drew Waters and a couple other names there. And so it makes some sense that they would move on from Taylor, save a little bit of money as well. Um, I believe. He's making like four or five million if I can pull that. Yeah, up. somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just a, a nice little trade that makes sense for both sides. Maybe the Royals didn't quite get full value on Taylor, but it's once you're enough. into these, yeah, once you're into these little numbers here, the the error bars, yeah. there, there's still a bit of an error bar on these, and if they particularly liked one of these relievers, that makes it a lot easier for them. And, and we're just talking about yep. talking about percentage points here, so. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one takeaway from me is that's a really good defensive outfield that the Twins have. Gallo's really good in left field defensively. You know, I think he's won a Gold Glove uh, before in the outfield. Uh, Kepler is a, is a really good defensive right fielder, and now you've got another Gold Glover in, in Taylor in center backing up Buxton that you mentioned when he's playing is really good. So they've like the pitching staff must love that outfield defense. Um, so. Even if you only use Taylor for like you know late inning replacement guy for for Buxton, you're still you know you're not going to lose anything in terms of defense, and you might get a little bit of offense from him, but you know not that much. He's not known for that. Uh, but it also second point is it, they have a lot of outfielders, right? Um, you know where you're going to put Larnock and Walner and Kirilov, and P- Kirilov's probably your first baseman because they traded away Arias, but you know it feels like they. You know, there's been a lot of speculation about are they going to trade Max Kepler because he seems like the obvious one to go because he's on a fifth contract and with only like a year plus an option left. But on the other hand, if you sign Correa, you kind of want to try to go for it, right? So why not keep your veterans and see what you have and then maybe trade at the deadline if you're not in it? So since we haven't seen anything of note recently in terms of rumors of Kepler since the Correa signing, I have a funny feeling that that's their strategy. Let's just go with what we got, and um, you know, and see if we're, we can contend. Yeah, I think right now they're good with Kirilov at first, Larnock and uh, uh, and Nick Gordon kind of shuffling around DH along with Buxton on his off days, and and kind of rotating those guys around. The most recent reports that I saw were that they haven't had much traction on Kepler, and they're planning on holding on to him at least for now Mm -hmm. and it's an interesting case he's there's been a lot written about kepler because he just has historically low babips throughout his whole career and people are saying well could could the shift help him more than other other hitters could removing the shift make him a much more valuable hitter and there's kind of some pushback on that because it's it's more than just he gets hits into the shift a lot there's a lot more to it with him and, and his batted ball profile but he has historically hit the ball very hard. And as you mentioned, he's a pretty solid corner outfield defender. So I think there's an argument to hanging on to him. Like you said, you've got Correa. You made the big trade for Pablo Lopez. You're going for it right now. Why not just keep some depth? And if things really go well, then maybe you're trading Trevor Larnock at the deadline for another pitcher or something along those lines. If things don't go well, then yeah, we can talk about trading Kepler in a month or two. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they have a... They have an interesting team there. I'm excited to see 
how the the central plays out because the guardians sat pretty pretty pat they added josh bell and not a whole lot else Mm -hmm. um and they have a young team and so maybe they're projecting some growth already on on the on the players who are already there but i i I think the twins did a lot to close that gap this offseason all right um sticking with the royals they made another trade uh they sent adalberto mondesi and a player to be named later to the boston red sox in exchange for left-handed reliever josh taylor uh we had mondesi at 1.5 million and taylor at 2.4 million so we're guesstimating the player to be named later at about 0.9 if it's anywhere honestly honestly it's an accepted trade as is 1.5 for 2.4 and the player to be named later is not likely to be anybody of too much value so it's tentatively accepted by the model um just an interesting interesting trade here so the red sox uh they lost andrew bogarts this offseason and they really were and still are piecing together they're kind of up the middle situation right now between Christian Arroyo and Enrique Hernandez. Um, and so they add Mondesi into the mix. You can't, he's, he's an even bigger injury question than Byron Buxton. You can't pencil Mondesi in for any more than like 60 games, but he's been an interesting player a, a high upside guy, uh, some speed, some power, a good glove at shortstop. If they can keep him on the field and maybe tap into a little bit of that, this could be a really nice buy low for them. And all it cost them was a left-handed reliever that they, clearly weren't too thrilled about after 2022 but on the flip side of it there's a chance that Mondesi just flames out entirely (laughs) so that's why he was that's why he came so cheap um on the Royals end of it they're trying to shuffle in their their current infield situation they have Hunter Dozier who's locked up there and he wasn't very good for them at all in 2022 but they need to give him another shot to rebuild some value they have Bobby Witt, who they want to give the full-time shortstop job, and then they have Nick Lopez, and I think his name is, is it Michael Massey? Yeah. And and a couple other guys, uh, a couple other prospects coming up that they want to get some looks to, and so Mondesi was the odd man out, I believe, in his final year of arbitration, and with all the injuries, I think he just kind of, I don't want to say overstayed his welcome, but uh, he overstayed his welcome. Yeah, I mean, he's been kind of a buzz guy for years. Like, Montessi's so talented, and then he never quite puts it together, and then he gets injured, or he doesn't hit as well as you think he's going to hit. You know, if you look at his WRC pluses, you're like, oh. Like, you think they're going to be higher, but, you know, they're they're below average every single year. So something was wrong there. And also, he was out of options. It's just the list goes on. Like, <laughs> there's talent, but, you know, a lot of butts there. Uh, so that's why he came cheap, to your point. And so, you know, look, it's 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 not really, a, you know, why not try it, basically, for the Red Sox? Why not give him a shot and see if something happens? Maybe he clicks with the change of scenery and different coaching. I don't know, but it's it's worth a shot at that low price. So it's hard to say that that's, um, you know, that's there's nothing bad you can say about that from their point of view. And the Royals, like I said, you know, they're they're ready to kind of cast off some veterans. He only had a year left on his uh, of control. And, you know, they did get a veteran reliever back, but that's why I think maybe, you know, they might flip another reliever like a Barlow uh, just to kind of keep the keep the uh, merry-go-round turning over there in the bullpen. Yeah, good call. I, I could see them, maybe they're waiting on the Fulmer and Chafin market to, to finalize, and then whoever lost yeah. the game of musical chairs and still wants a reliever or has a guy go down in spring, hey, we have mm-hmm. a we have a Scott Barlow just for you. Just hand us a couple prospects <laughs> and he's yours. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just just feels like a very Heim Bloom move. It, it's a very raisy, 
budgety. Let's let's take a, a gamble on upside for pretty much zero cost, and not likely to to pay dividends or anything, but it sure could. Mm-hmm. All right, sticking with the Red Sox, uh, they made another trade. I believe to make room for Mondesi, and I think there were a couple other signings that they had to make room for as well. Um, but within that kind of transaction flurry, they ended up DFAing right-handed reliever Matt Barnes. And uh, they were able to work out a trade with the Marlins. And so they sent Barnes to the Marlins in exchange for left-handed reliever Richard Blyer. We had Barnes at negative 6.7 million, Blyer at positive 0.8 million. And the it was originally reported that the Red Sox were only kicking in like a million. And then a few hours later, a frustrating <laughs> few hours later, uh, they reported that it was actually 5.5 million. So basically making this cost neutral. Uh, I think they might be saving a little bit of money. Um, so that brings this deal to, to pretty much fair. It's negative 1.2 to the Marlins, positive 0.8 to the Red Sox. So within our usual margin of error there. Um, Barnes really was awful in the first half of 2022 and then he got hurt and he came back from that injury and was actually pretty solid so i think that's what the marlins are gambling on here uh whereas blyer he's pretty pretty much is what he is he's a lefty reliever he's going to be strong much stronger against left-handed hitters but he's not a pure specialist loogie type guy and, and it's harder to be a loogie in today's game with a three batter minimum um but doesn't miss many bats does, uh, doesn't walk many guys, throws a lot of strikes, gets a lot of ground balls, and yeah, a, a decent left-handed reliever, probably an upgrade over Josh Taylor, at least for, for this upcoming season. Yeah, I mean, Blyer, Blyer's a sort of a savvy old pro. He's going to be 35 or something, you know. He doesn't throw with velocity, you know, but he knows he, he, he knows how to kind of pick his spots. You know, he's a control sort of artist, and to your point, you know, gets a lot of ground balls, so you know, it makes you wonder if the defense in Boston can handle that. You know, if he's facing, you know, you'll probably get a, you know, you can get lefties out, maybe a little dicier against righties, but we'll see. Um, but, you know, he's a proven lefty, so why not? Yeah, Blyer against righties with the green monster out there in left field. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. But hey, he doesn't throw hard, so maybe they won't hit it that hard. <laughs> yep, off, right? Yep, but that's how it works, right? The yeah. old adage of, you know, hey, he's throwing hard. Well, that just means it's going to come off the bat harder, that kind of yeah. thing. Well, maybe it works in reverse. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, it's. I think the Marlins also had a handful of left handed relievers, and so they're just kind of balancing out their yeah. bullpen handedness a bit with this trade. And, and they didn't really have anybody who you felt really good about in the late innings. And I'm not saying Barnes is a guy you do just off the bat feel good about, but he's a guy who really could step into that. It wouldn't be a surprise at all to see him return to being a pretty lockdown late inning reliever. And that's the type of guy the Marlins need. And that's the type of guy Richard Blyer was never going to be. So this may be an appropriate point to sort of mention. We talked about earlier how Matt Moore and Andrew Chafin and uh, Michael Fulmer are still in the market, but, um, Moore and Chafin are two lefties who are, you know, coming off really good years, and in Chafin's case, a couple of years, and they're still out there. And there was a report that said they wanted money. You know, the the deal that Matt Strom got from the Phillies was an overpay, according to our model, and by seemingly the entire baseball world. And what happened was, according to the report I read, I think it was from Ken Rosenthal, actually, um, that, you know, Chafin and Moore – Think okay, we're we're at least as good as that guy, so we need to get that money. 
and no one wants to pay them that money because everyone says, uh oh, the Phillies overpaid for Matt Strom, which set the market too high, and so now they're stuck. Nobody wants to pay what Chapin and Moore are asking, basically, and so that's why maybe you could argue that the that the Red Sox went this direction instead for Blyer. Yeah, that's a really good point. And the third name that's out there that kind of a wild card is Zach Britton. Oh, right. He's a bit in the same boat. He's had some teams interested, in, and he's coming back from an injury, so it's a bit different. Um, but yeah, the Matt Strom contract was two years, $15 million, And I'm looking at roster resource right now, the free agent tracker. Uh, they didn't have a contract crowdsourced for Andrew Chafin because I believe he had a mutual option, and so they, they didn't uh, do the crowdsourcing for him. Uh, but Matt Moore was projected at one year, $5 million by the Fangraphs readers. And Strom got two years, $15 million. And I think Matt Moore had a better year last year than Strom. Yeah. So that's, you're right, that's got to be a big part of the gap is Moore's pointing at that contract and other teams are saying, no, thank you, you're Matt Moore. Because <laughs> you came out of nowhere after all those years of struggles. Um, but Strom was good in the first half of the year, then he really fell apart in the second half. So you could argue the Phillies were just sort of, you know, hoping that he can sustain you know the the you know the quality of work that he had in the first half across an entire season even though it's doubtful that he can based on his track record but they overpaid basically for strom so now the other guys want to get overpaid too is the basic problem here yeah and i think what i mentioned earlier in the episode that teams are probably waiting until we get to spring training and they can slide guys off the 40-man roster and onto the 60-man injured list and then open up some spots for these guys there's no reason if if there's no heavy competition for any of these guys right now, which it doesn't seem like there is. I mean, things could change. One of them could sign while we're talking right now. But if there's no heavy competition, then why not wait two weeks and, and just get the same deal done and not lose a player in the process? All right. And then the one last move we have to talk about, one last trade, I guess, we have to talk about this episode. Uh, it's further fallout from the Barnes and all the other Boston transactions. Um the Red Sox DFA'd Franklin Herman, a young right-handed reliever, and ended up trading him as well. They traded him to the White Sox in exchange for another right-handed reliever, Theo Denlinger. And we had Herman at 0.7 million trade value, Denlinger at 0.2. So still within our usual margin, um, just kind of a, a depth 40-man fringe move. Mm-hmm. Herman... Um perhaps might ring a bell to some Red Sox Yankees fans because he was the uh, prospect included in the Adam Ottavino trade, which uh, was notable because um, there was some, uh, it was unusual that the Red Sox and Yankees would make a trade and there was some cash involved in that one as well. Basically Boston ended up buying quote unquote Herman in that deal. Um, But then didn't seem to work out. So here they are. They're trying again. I've noticed a bit of a revolt in Boston right now. Um, not surprising. People have been calling for Heim Bloom's head for a couple of years now, because of course they have. But <laughs> particularly with the roster management and the guys who are getting cut, because they're hanging on to Ryan Brazier really tight. And he was not good for them in 2022, and I believe he's out of options. Um, he had much better peripherals, though, and it seems like Heim and the Red Sox front office are really betting on him to bounce back this year. Um, but yeah, he's he's survived a lot of these tough roster cuts. He's survived when Connor Siebold and Frank Herman and Matt Barnes got cut instead. 
and he had a 5.78 ERA for them last year, but a 3.61 FIP. Yeah, so, so we know, and we, we know, we know. Sorry, we know Bloom's a, an analytics guy, and I'd seen a report that um, one of the reasons they DFA'd Matt Barnes, despite the little blip in in his return from injury last uh, late last season, was because his numbers were uh, trending the wrong way. The expected numbers looked bad to them. And we can see that as well. And we can also see Brazier's numbers when you look at kind of deeper and look at StatCast data. It's a little bit better. Um, so that makes total sense. We have Brazier with a little bit of uh, surplus value. So I get that. What Bloom's probably seeing the same thing. Yep. It's it's the, the Rays mentality that he brought over to, to Boston. Uh, people are just little unhappy that the raise mentality came without uh also opening up the checkbooks the way andrew friedman has done in uh in los angeles where he he brought that kind of smart forward thinking but also had the green light to spend and support it and that hasn't quite happened in boston obviously they they did sign yoshida and they extended devers but they also lost out on bogards traded bets a few years ago that kind of stuff so that's yeah. that's where some of the disconnect comes with the fan base totally bloom's head (laughs) totally bloom's the kind of guy that you know he and the owner john henry will get along well because they're thinking along the same lines about you know efficiencies and such but the red sox fans don't like that dombrowski was a better fit for the fans if not for the owner because he's just like okay damn the torpedoes i'm going for it and uh they love that but so i think there's a pr problem in boston to your point yeah i was this is a tangent. I was listening to an older episode of Effectively Wild. I'm, I'm way behind on that. Uh, and they were talking about Dave Dombrowski. I think this was around when he signed Taiwan Walker to a very lofty contract. <laughs> um, they were talking about him. They were wondering if Dombrowski could just do this with any team. You know, he has this skill of convincing owners to open up the pocketbooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think... It's a bit of it. A bit of it goes both ways, you know. If you're signing Dave Dombrowski to run your team, you're not doing so with the expectation that he's gonna penny pinch. You know who he is. You know what you're getting yourself into. But how far does it go in the other direction? You know, if you stuck Dombrowski on the A's, what happens? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I don't think he's ever been in that. Well, if he has been, look, I mean, I know he built the Tigers into that. Um... You know, contending contending team back in the two thousand earlier this uh, says this century. I'm gonna say, but um, yeah, the team with you know Verlander and Scherzer and all, all those guys, McGuckleberry and his prime. But I can't remember if he built that team or if he just sort of came in and then kind of took it to the next level. Because that's what he's known for: is the latter is taking the team to the next level. It's already got a core, and he will add to that core. Did he do the Miguel Cabrera trade? Was I don't that remember. I. Yeah, we're way off topic, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> no, this is this is entirely me. I I sent us <laughs> down this rabbit hole. Uh, anyway, Dombrowski, cool. Bloom, uh, not not making friends in Boston unless they make the playoffs <laughs> this year. Then I guess they will. At least he at least they extended Devers. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's all for our trades for this week. Uh. But we do have a handful of extensions to get into. Uh. The biggest one was Jeff McNeil. He got a four-year, fifty million dollar contract extension with the club option. Uh, he had two years of arbitration remaining, so this buys out those two tax on two guaranteed free agent years, as well as that club option for the fifth. And in general, it's it seems like a pretty fair fair uh, contract. Uh, the, the site's loading a little bit slow this morning, so 
haven't been able to pull up his previous value to actually have that comparison, but currently his value is at 16.1. That's probably just about where it was before the extension, if I had to guess. Um, and it's because McNeil, he's a very, very talented baseball player, but he is already 30. Uh, he was a bit of a late bloomer. He is, you know, he's got some defensive flexibility, but it's not... It's not the type that is valued by teams, the primary second baseman who can fake it in the corner outfield spots and maybe some first base, third base. That's not a defensively valuable player. So as as good of a hitter as he is and as good of an overall player as he ends up being because of that, he's not the type of guy who is going to get some lofty six or nine figure yeah. numbers, nine figure total value on a contract either now or when he hit free agency, especially because he was going to hit free agency as a 32 year old and we know the market hasn't been super kind to players in that kind of age range so it's it's a good call for him to get his money now he also had a bit of a down year was that 2020 um within the last couple of years he had there was one down season that yeah. he had, so that could be factoring in a little bit as well um but in, in general it's, it seems like a fair commitment and it, it seems like a good bet for him to just take that money and also a good bet for the mets you know they have endless endless money that blank checks left and right for them um and so why not lock in a guy who you really like a, a unique player who really fits your roster well and, and just not have to worry about him in a couple of years yeah so from a valuation standpoint uh we have his field value at 66.1 and as you noted he's making 50 so think about it this way if he were a free agent right now um what we're saying is he would get a four-year 66 million dollar deal at full market value so that's roughly 33 16 and a half million per year that feels about right for a guy like him you know hits for average doesn't play defense all that great um and so the the mets are basically saying okay we'll give you 50 and you know we'll split the difference and so i believe his surplus value is a little bit higher than this so they kind of met in the middle and that's typically what happens with extensions like this when the players are a couple of years away from free agency so they give a little on each side so that that number feels about right um, because the the Mets kind of bake in, you know, uh, a margin of safety, call it. Um, if he gets injured or if he, you know, declines again, you know, then then, you know, eh, we underpaid for him. But from McNeil's standpoint, to your point, you know, he's going to be 31 this year. So if he waits till free agency when he's 33, he's probably going to be you know <laughs> a little past his prime and probably not making that much because he kind of came on the scene as a late bloomer so you know it kind of works out for him too this is probably the best he's going to get especially from a rich owner so i you know who among us would would turn up our noses at 50 million dollars certainly not me so um i think it's fine agreed uh, i just pulled it up and it was actually 2021 that he struggled a little bit he had a okay. 92 wrc plus compared to his 131 career mark Oh, but right. Yeah. Was yeah. very good again last year. 326, yeah. 382, 454. Um, somehow he hit. Oh, I guess that was juiced ball, huh? He hit 23 homers in 2019 and has not hit double digits since. <laughs> um, but just thinking about it, man, it's it's got to be rough as a pitcher to have to face McNeil and Nimmo in the same lineup. Those two are. They, they put together in at bat. Yeah, they're pesky. Yeah. And they're they're not just pesky. They're pesky and good and they can they can punish you so it's a it's a good player to lock in a good player to have in your lineup and uh yeah he he complements the rest of the roster well Mm -hmm. okay uh then the rays went on a bit of a spree 
Uh, so for starters, Jeffrey Springs, uh, he gets a four-year contract extension uh, guaranteeing $31 million. Uh, there's incentives. There's a, a club option for 2027. Uh, it can max out at $65.75 million over five years. And on, on face value, you might hear that and be like real confused. Why are the Rays handing out this much money to, to Jeffrey Springs? But Springs was very good for them last year. He previously had been, you know, a, a kind of fringe lefty reliever. He was actually traded a couple times early in his career from Texas to Boston, and then he really struggled in Boston and was flipped in a bit of a weird deal. Um, it was Springs and Mazza, and I think there was a catching prospect, Heriberto Hernandez, going back to, uh, was it Heriberto Hernandez or Ronald Hernandez? There was no. a catching prospect. Uh, Ronald, uh, Ronaldo. Ronaldo. Uh, yeah, one of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, going back to Boston. And at the time, we had that as a big overpay because the, the Rays were trading for these two fringe, like, DFA fodder relievers and giving up a real prospect. And since it has gone the complete other direction, because of course it did, they're the Rays, they know what they're doing. <laughs> and it was, it's a bit funny that, that uh, Bloom is on the losing end of this one, uh, but Springs is really, really good. He was a a really good left-handed reliever for the Rays last season in 2021. And then they started working him into the rotation in 2022 and he got even better. He had a 2.46 ERA, 3.04 fifth, three wins above replacement on fan graphs, uh, made 25 starts. So this is another case of the Rays finding something out of nothing and then jumping and locking into that before he gets really expensive and, and he could have gotten really expensive if he kept this type of performance up. Um, he's another guy who's a bit of a late bloomer. He's actually 30 years old as well. And so he was never going to get, I mean, unless, unless he just completely broke out, uh, it was very unlikely he was going to get any crazy guarantee in free agency when he hit it a few years from now. But uh, instead he gets his guarantee. Now the Rays lock in a solid left-handed pitcher into their rotation and yeah, just makes sense all around. Um, we have his current value at $32.8 million, his current surplus, and I am not sure where it was before. <laughs> it, yeah, it was getting high, you know, so it, it, you know, if you're committing to a guy and if you assume that, you know, the, the Rays know what they're doing and they're sticking with him over the next five years, he's still going to be, you know, reasonably good. So um, that's an AAV of about $12, 13000000 million a year, so... You know that's still pretty good value if he if he keeps this up basically, and even if he doesn't, you, you can always fall back on on him as a as a lefty reliever, which is where he started. But clearly they they unlock something with him, and they know what they're doing. And if, it's an interesting trend that I haven't seen people really focus on. Like Nestor Cortez comes to mind as well. Journeyman reliever suddenly turned into, you know, really effective starter. Like, is this happening more and more? <laughs> like, you know, I know there's been a lot of work, you know, with driveline and other sort of uh pitching factories like trying to unlock but those are mostly like hey let's get more velocity out of you these are slightly different cases these are like you know let's fine-tune that slider and make that your out pitch and then you know go from there and so there's different ways to skin a cat here and i think the the rays are onto something they, they unlocked you know something with springs here and now you know that he's getting rewarded for it and they're extending him with confidence that you know they can continue this so it's a really interesting trend I think a big part of it is the line between starter and reliever starting to blur more. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this last probably 10 or 15 years at this point, but 
with teams no longer expecting seven innings out of a starter every time, with them being okay getting five innings or even four on some cases, um, it makes it a lot easier to take a guy who's been in the bullpen and, and slot him into a starting role and see what happens. And I'm not saying I'm not saying Nestor Cortez. I know Nestor Cortez goes deep into games. I'm not saying that he's one of those five inning only types. But once you once you're okay with with taking a chance on a guy like that and trying them in the rotation and knowing they might only go five innings, then if you unlock something that makes them better, and whether it's a third pitch or just refining a pitch they already have or they build stamina or whatever, then they can make that jump into a Nestor Cortez who who is just a full fledged starter now. He he goes deep into games. He's not just one of these kind of in betweeners. Um, so so I wonder if that has something to do with it. And I I do really like your point that uh, they can they can fall back on moving springs back to the bullpen if things don't go well. And yeah, maybe he'd be a little bit overpaid as just a lefty reliever at this salary, but that's kind of the floor of the deal. Whereas there's a whole lot of upside for him to be massively underpaid as like a number two starting pitcher like he was last year. Yeah. All right. uh, Moving on from springs, uh, there were a couple other deals the Rays made. They extended Yandy Diaz, who's kind of a, a hitter version of Springs, if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, oh, I did want to mention as well that the reason for all these extensions is because we're in arbitration season. Uh, we're starting to see some players go to arbitration hearings, and a lot of the times you'll see some of these multi-year arbitration deals worked out uh, to avoid a hearing. And you know, maybe if they're even a little bit apart on the 2023 salary, uh, they can they can come to an agreement that covers some extra years and leaves everybody happy in the end and they don't have to go to that hearing so that's that's a little bit of what we're seeing here um so yandy diaz though he gets a three-year 24 million dollar uh extension with a 12 million dollar team option that'll buy out let's see i believe yes his last two years of arbitration and one guaranteed year of free agency with the option for a second year there and diaz is a really interesting player uh so for starters, he's he's defensively limited. He's a corner infielder, not the greatest third baseman, pretty much a, a first base DH type, especially as he gets a little older here. He's also on, on the wrong side of 30. He's, he's 31 years old, another late bloomer. Uh, he was a guy who the Rays targeted from Cleveland. Uh, with Cleveland, he was you could tell he was just jacked. <laughs> he had all the strength yeah. in the world, all the power in the world, but he just hammered the ball into the ground, and that was all he did. And so the the Rays targeted him. And what's interesting is they didn't really fix him. They didn't really get him to lift the ball, but he's still just been a very good hitter. It, it, it's really interesting. So, you know, he's, he's this massive guy who has, you know, he's listed from his prospect report on Fangrass with 50 raw power. I, he, he looks like he should have 60 or 70 grade raw power. Um, but he's the most home runs he's ever hit in a season was 14, and and that was during the juice ball in 2019. And it's because he just hits the ball into the ground so much, and that really hasn't changed. But he's still just been very effective. He last season he walked more than he struck out, put up a 401 on base percentage, just a just a quality hitter. He hits the ball hard on the ground. He hits some line drives as well. He gets into one every now and then, and he just is a very patient hitter. And so that's adds up to very valuable um again a non-traditional profile especially for a guy who's leaning more toward first base dh as he gets older but it's it's value it's a a valuable hitter and 
you know, at, at a certain point, you don't care what that value looks like. If they're going to be an impact bat, who cares if it's with home runs or with walks and, and singles and doubles, you know? Yeah. So he put up 3.8 F4 last year, and he's projected by Steamer to put up 4, four war this year. And you could, you know, argue that, as, you know, if you want to. But the fact is, yeah, what we clearly know about him is he hits the ball really hard. Where it goes, whether it's in the air or in the ground or straight, it almost doesn't matter because, you know, more analytics have come out that the harder you hit the ball, more good things happen. Like you hit a line liner to third, maybe the guy, maybe Chapman or Arenado could get it, but most third basemen, you know, it goes flying right by him, right? So that's not really an out. <laughs> you know, that's a hard hit ball that found its found its place. And you can say that about wherever else it goes to. Hard hit balls are just harder to field. And so he's getting by with, with that kind of thing. Um, so his average has been going up. It went up from 256 to 296 last year. And, you know, he's getting a 401 on base percentage, to your point. I mean, he takes really good at bats and will take his walks. And, you know, he's not going to strike out all that much. So that is a really valuable um, hitter, all, all told. Defense, not so much. But, you know, for a first base profile, with those kind of offensive numbers, you know, even though he's not hitting the ball over the fence as much, he's hitting it hard everywhere when he fix when he when he finds one he likes. So um and you can trust him on that because he's been doing it for years. So they was like, okay, we're money in the bank. We know what he is. It's an unusual profile, but we know what we're gonna get. So why not invest a little bit more in it? James Loney had a long successful career at first base without much power. And mm. I, I think Yandy Diaz has more power than James Loney. So Maybe not a one-to-one -one comparison. I mean, but... you know, you can go John Olerud, mm -hmm. who's just like, you know, you know, yeah, no power at all for first baseman, but, you know, that worked out well, too. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't look like his new contract has made it into the site, um, unless this is just another case of the site loading something weird. Um, okay, we'll fix but, that. Yeah, but at, at least his previous value before the contract extension was 17.7. Uh, we had his salary for those two years of arbitration projected at 13.5, and he'll be getting 14 for those two years. So that lines up to to keep the value pretty similar, and then we'll just have to see what happens with the uh, free agent years when we put him in. Mm -hmm. um, okay, and then the last Ray to get an extension was Pete Fairbanks, uh, reliever. He gets, a, he gets a three year deal with a club option as well. Uh, it'll be a $12 million guarantee. Uh, the option is a $7 million guarantee base level but there's incentives all around on it uh so the entire contract could max out at 24.6 million and fairbanks is just honestly he's a very similar story to the other ones i think he might be let's see i'm pulling him up right now yeah he's 29 so a little bit younger than them but a similar case of came out of nowhere a little bit and just has been a dominant reliever for the rays it's it's we've heard this story before <laughs> they they picked him up from the rangers for, uh Oh gosh, what trade was that? Um, ah, I remember Nick it. Nick Solak. Nick Solak, there it is. <laughs> Who has since been DFA'd. <laughs> yep. And this is just a classic Rays story, and, and they've made Fairbanks into a dominant late-inning arm. His fastball ticked up two miles an hour last season. I think he was injured for part of the year. Um, but yeah, he, he's one of their better late-inning arms. He had a 113 ERA, just untouchable. Tons of strikeouts, didn't really walk anyone last year, and and this contract is a steal for that. I mean, it's, it, it's arbitration. He would have had his salaries fairly limited anyway, especially on the Rays, where they kind of share their 
uh, late innings between a few different guys. They mix and match. And so he wasn't going to rack up saves that would have paid him in arbitration. And when you factor in the injury as well and the limited time last year, he only pitched 24 innings. Um, so all yeah. of that combined, he wasn't going to get paid a ton in arbitration. So I'm not saying that this, when I say that this is a steal, I'm not saying that, wow, the Rays got him for much cheaper than they should have because it's probably fairly in line with what arbitration would have paid him. And they're just locking him in and adding in a, a club option to cover a free agent year. But just, I'm just saying that this is a very, very good reliever and this contract is going to look very good, I believe, <laughs> as, yeah, as he continues to dominate. As long as he stays healthy, which has been the big thing with him. Yeah, exactly. And that's always the, the thing here, and especially when you're talking about a reliever who throws triple digits and has not pitched more than 42 innings in a major league season. Uh, that's the, the health question is always going to be a big one. Um, but, hey, at this price, even if you do get 30 innings of him a year, I think you're pretty happy with mm -hmm. it. All right, so there's all of the Rays moves. Uh, there's a couple more extensions here, I believe. I'm just closing some tabs. Uh, Dylan Moore. Uh, the Mariners gave their utility man a three-year contract extension, $8.875 million guaranteed. Uh, there's escalators. There's no options. Buys out two arbitration years and one free agent year. Moore is 30. He had a pretty solid season in 2022, and he, you know, he is just... A utility guy he's a primary second baseman can play some infield some outfield um shouldn't be anything more than a bench guy but he's a nice player to have yeah he had a 368 on base last year which was pretty surprising and he was actually pretty good in 2020 as well and so if, if you're getting that guy who's actually an above average hitter and he can play all these defensive positions he's fast he's got a little bit of power and that's a pretty good deal if if he goes back into the 2021 hitter that he was or 74 wrc plus eh, you know it's still a very cheap contract and you're not going to complain about playing about paying your bench guy a few million a year so it's 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 a low risk deal but could be a could be a steal if he keeps this level of product uh, production up yeah uh you know he's a good bench guy you know everybody needs a player like that so it's become fashionable to have you know, kind of a super utility guy. He may not be, you know, the archetype of super utility guy where he's really good at really, you know, a lot of different positions. Um, but he's capable at positions and he does take a good at bat. So, you know, he's a valuable guy to have on your bench. And so you might as well keep him around for like, he's a glue guy. You keep him around for glue for a couple of years. Yeah. When this came through, I was a little bit surprised by it. I thought, oh, I was trying to think of the last time one of these has actually worked out. You know, signing one of these like fringier utility guys to a multi-year deal, and 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 I don't think it has in recent history. I couldn't think of an example, but looking into the numbers more, it it, it makes a lot more sense now. It, more is he was solid in 2022, and it, at the very least, he's a capable bench guy, and that's all you really need him to be for this kind of money. Um, looks like his value went down from 8.3 to 4.2 because of this deal, um, and that's likely. Uh, the majority of that just comes from actually i'm not sure what that comes from <laughs> it, it could be that uh we had him projected to be non-tendered in a later year of the deal we had his value going underwater potentially um and now that these are guaranteed uh that brings his value down a little bit and, and that's just a, a factor of you know, he, he plays primarily he plays non-premium positions, so he gets kind of dinged that way. He's into his 30s, so he's going to be hitting the aging curve, and he doesn't have a 
overwhelmingly uh, consistent track record. So all of those factors could have had him trending toward a non-tender in year three, and now that's guaranteed, and, and so that that could explain some of the dip here. That's exactly right. Yeah, he's getting into his aging curve, you know, post-30 years as you extend a little bit. And, you know, this is actually a better deal for the Mariners because, you know, they can, you know, he, his, um, yeah, his, to your point, his arbitration numbers were going to get a little bit higher, so it was going to squeeze him out a little bit. You know, so uh, everybody wins in this deal, basically. He gets a little bit more money. You know, they get a player at a little bit less than what they would have paid for. Yep, and that's, like you said earlier, that's how these tend to work. Mm-hmm. Last one, and this one's the only one of these that isn't uh, arbitration related, and it's kind of surprising. Uh, the Dodgers extended Miguel Rojas, so they had just traded for him, acquired him from the Marlins earlier this offseason in exchange for Jacob Amaya. And this is, it's just, they, they've done this a couple times recently. I think they did it with like Trinan, and uh, there was another name that they did this with, but they're just kind of tacking on an extra year. Danny Duffy, uh, so they, maybe? Yeah, that might be it. Um, so Rojas was set to earn $5 million in 2023. That gets reworked into a $3.5 million salary with a $1.5 million signing bonus. So just kind of shuffling around that money. Uh, and then guarantees him another $5 million in 2024 and a $5 million club option for 2025. So add $6 million guaranteed because that second year has a buyout. Shuffles around that first-year contract for the Dodgers' own luxury tax and whatever purposes. Um, but yeah, keeps Rojas in Los Angeles for at least another year, potentially two. Um, it looks like, pulling up the values, it looks like they didn't change a whole lot. Nope. Um, he was at 4.9, goes down to 4.5, so exactly. a wash. Yeah. Um, yep. But yeah, not, not a bad deal for, again, for either side, and it's... Uh, it's nice insurance for the Dodgers uh, because they don't have a very certain future in the middle infield right now, either in the near term or in the long term. And so this just gives them a little bit more certainty. Um, obviously, if you're the Dodgers, you don't plan on starting Miguel Rojas at shortstop for the next three seasons. Uh, but it, he's at least going to be there as an option if, if there's injuries yeah. or if other things fall through. He's a reliable sort of veteran presence, to use a cliche. You know, and it's, it's interesting that they want to play him around the diamond because he's really just been a shortstop. But we always know shortstops are the best, typically the best athletes on the field, so they can always play around. So I guess, sure, why not? You know, the Dodgers have a tendency to move the deck chairs around quite a bit. So uh, he seems open to it. But it's also interesting in that he had, um, I think, a hand issue uh, he had surgery on when he was traded, and they knew that. Um, and so, and yet they extended him even though he was injured. So they haven't even seen him play in a Dodger uniform yet, and yet they already extended him. So they kind of, you know, are trusting that everything's going to be fine in that regard. I, it sounds like it was minor anyway. So, um, but it's interesting. You don't usually see extensions until like, okay, let's make sure you're okay. Then we'll extend you. They don't seem to worry about that. Yeah. And I guess when you're talking about a lower cost deal like this, and when you're talking about the Dodgers, there's a little bit less risk for them, you know, even if that is, even if that injury does flare up a little bit, yeah. you're, how much are you actually losing, and what are we talking about? Are we talking about him missing twenty games a year, or, or right. what's going on? So, exactly. So, all right, that's all of the significant transactions. The one last one I wanted to talk about while we were on that arbitration uh, subject earlier is Luis Arise. So we went deep into that trade last episode. And 
we we discussed why it was an overpay uh by the Marlins why you know even if even if we kind of fudge the numbers if we tweak things here and there it still looks like an overpay so we're pretty confident leaving it that and now we learned that Luis Arias won his arbitration hearing against the Marlins and so this is a bit of a weird quirk with how the whole process works where the deadline to submit arbitration figures already passed before the trade and so the twins submitted their five million dollar figure for Arias and Arias submitted 6.1 and after being traded over to Miami Miami doesn't get to resubmit a new number or anything they're just kind of stuck with what they have and Arias gets the 6.1 and that's notable because uh, Matt Swartz of MLB Trade Rumors had Arias projected at five and so that's the number that we were going off of for this year and instead he'll be making an extra 1.1 million and he has three years of team control so that will that'll snowball over the last two years of team control and and significantly increase his salary projections for the entire course of the contract and so that'll work to decrease his value further which makes makes the deal look a little worse even <laughs> for mm -hmm. for the marlins yeah, I mean, you know, you could give him a little bump for inflation, which you know, we, at the time of the trade we hadn't really applied to him, but you know, now that he's going to get paid more, it kind of it's a wash basically. So there's still a gap there, unfortunately. Now, one thing I will think think excuse me, one thing that I did see that was interesting is there was an article I saw, I came across it on Twitter, uh, and I'm trying to remember the author's name, but uh, really well argued that batting average as a statistic is kind of under undervalued if you will by the market like he's saying actually you thought batting average didn't matter anymore because it was more about expected sounds betting average is really important and that was his like he capitalized really important several times and he, he makes a strong case that actually betting average um has a high correlation to to run creation um more so than than you might have thought and so it made me wonder if you know, maybe some front offices know this and maybe they will value a guy with a high batting average like Arias a little bit more than, you know, consensus models, if you will, will. So I'm just sort of putting it in my back pocket for now thinking, okay, well, let's keep an eye on batting average guys. McNeil, we know, has a high batting average guy and he just got extended. And maybe maybe the A's, as they're reaching for his Ruiz and Daryl, Darrell Hernandez, maybe those turn out to be high batting, guys, batting average guys, and we'll see. Anyway, I don't know. It's just something to look at. Um, maybe there's a case there. We're not seeing it right now. Uh, but if we see a lot of data points going, wow, these you know these high high average guys are getting uh, highly valued, then we'll 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 adjust to that. But right now, I think it's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting to keep in the back pocket. And mm -hmm. like you said, it, it wraps around to the A's and I think puts a nice little bow on the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all I have. Um, do you have anything else for today? No, but I do think, um, you know, once the... I mean, we'll probably see a couple of, you know, dribs and drabs of deals coming through as, you know, maybe some minor trades, maybe... I'm not sure if there's a big one coming, but, you know, once the offseason is like, okay, we're done... Then we'll do a recap and say, much like we do at the trade deadline, saying, okay, how'd we do? What patterns did we see? What adjustments did we make? You know, we'll include some adjustments we recently made to the reliever model and so on. So look for that in the coming weeks. Sounds good. All right. I think that's all I have. Um, I'm looking forward to some games starting out here soon out in Arizona. 
There's going to be Ooh, spring training in a few weeks. There's going to be the World Baseball Classic. I already have some tickets to go see a couple nice. of those games. It's it's about to be a really fun time of year. We actually have the Super Bowl coming up soon as well, mm. and the big old Phoenix Open. And it's it's going to be a busy time out here. <laughs> Lucky you. Well, enjoy. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy the offseason. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.